Um, John chapter 11. Two-minute grammar lesson. And this may be the worst opening line of a sermon in history. Two-minute grammar lesson. <laughs> I just lost 99% of everybody here. Verbs have voices, tenses, and moods. Okay? If you want to ask me, if you, if you are one of the one in a million people who is interested in grammar, you can ask me about it afterwards. But now I'm going to go through this real fast. The three principal moods are the imperative, which expresses a command, pick up that paper. The indicative, which expresses an action, he picks up the paper. And the subjunctive, which expresses a potential action, he should or could or might pick up the paper. Not all languages, this is super interesting to me, not all languages have a subjunctive mood. The subjunctive is the mood of possibility and of regret. So imagine what it would be like to speak a language where no one ever said, I wish that wouldn't have happened. Or I wish I'd never done that. Or if I do that, this is what might happen. So our language patterns profoundly influence the way we think. I wonder if people speaking a language without the subjunctive mood feel less regret than people like us. I mean, if we never said would have, could have, or should have, would we be more content? And maybe. But languages have other means besides the subjunctive to express possibility and regret. And I think it must be so because to be human means to live with potentialities, both good and bad. English, of course, has a subjunctive mood. Um, so does Greek. It's a little, it works a little differently, but so does Greek. And we see it along with those other means I mentioned, expressing possibility and regret in John chapter 11. At the risk of boring you completely and you thinking me really nerdy, 14.3% of the verbs in John 11 are subjunctive mood verbs. And there are also nine conditional particles, words like if and would, that achieve the same purpose. Those are those other ways of expressing potentiality. So end of grammar lesson. So it's uphill from here. Everything gets better on from this point on. That means John 11 is filled with would-haves, could-haves, and should-haves, just like our lives. We can be paralyzed with uncertainty over upcoming possibilities or with disappointment over past failures. When uncertainty is pulling us one way, disappointment another, knowing Jesus as the resurrection and the life can help us keep our balance. Let's read our text, John chapter 11. I'll read verses 17 through 32. You follow along. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? 
Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. Literally, she spoke to Mary privately. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So we have Martha saying to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Mary says the same thing. We have the mourners in verse 37. We didn't go that far, but they say, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? See, when Jesus entered Bethany, he entered a subjunctive minefield, a place of should'ves, would'ves, and could'ves. When he entered our world, he entered such a place, a place of successes that would and failures that would not have happened if we'd only done things differently, a place of successes and failures that might still happen, including the ultimate failure of death. And yet, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, there is no ultimate failure for his people. Death is not ultimate, nor is it a failure for them. Martha and her sister Mary were sitting in in their home, receiving friends and family who had come to comfort them in their loss. Now, in a Jewish household in this period, this kind of grieving ritual lasted seven days. Since they lived just two miles from Jerusalem, there's a steady stream of friends coming from the city. And a line has formed. Everyone wants to express their condolences, probably first to Martha, who seems to be the older sister, then to Mary. One guest, however, is not delivering condolences, but a message. He whispers to her, Jesus is outside the village. He's waiting for you there. Martha excuses herself and goes outside. She doesn't even tell her sister that Jesus has come, but goes alone to meet him. That word is often used in ancient Greek of the meeting of opponents, of the meeting of armies even, which may be why John chose it. Martha doesn't wait for Jesus to speak. The first words out of her mouth are, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In our subjunctive world, see, it's not just that we could have done something that would have averted some disaster, but that God could have done something. And didn't. Some commentators say this is Martha's grief overflowing, and it's certainly grief, but it's also very like a grievance. Though Mary will say substantially the same thing, and English versions render it, render it identically. There's a difference in the word order in Greek. Martha puts the emphasis on the word my. My brother wouldn't have died. She's hurt. And she knows Jesus could have prevented it. Now, think of the hurts God could have prevented in your life. I, too, had a brother who died, and God could have prevented that. Karen had a sister who was killed. God could have prevented that. 
Think of the opportunities missed, the sorrows met, the misunderstandings that might have been avoided. The sticking point for most atheists I know or have corresponded with is that the God of the Bible would have prevented the terrible things they've experienced or usually that they've heard about if he existed. He didn't. And therefore, they say he doesn't exist. In answer to Martha, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would, have, would not have died. Jesus says, your brother will rise. Now, I suspect she thought, what kind of answer is that? He's dead, and we have to live the rest of our lives without him, yet all I've heard for the last four days is that he will rise. Can't you do any better than that? What she said was, I know he will rise in the resurrection at the last day, but that's small comfort now. Martha, God lover, and he does love her, couldn't see outside the confines of her small world and her big fears and her deep hurts. Jesus was trying to raise her sights to see or raise her faith to believe that there's more going on than she knows. But Martha had the same problem that those atheists God loved them, and he does love them, have too narrow a vision and too small a God. A small God has no answers for the woulda, shoulda, couldas of our lives. But the God who reveals himself in Jesus is no small God. He's not constrained by time or space or by the laws of physics. He's not only the God of creation, but of recreation, the Lord of the dead and the living, the resurrection, and the life. Are you familiar with the nine dots puzzle? Uh, There are nine dots laid out just like on a domino. To solve the puzzle, you must, without bending the paper or lifting your pen off the paper, connect all nine dots with just four lines. I, I remember when I first saw this, my friend assured me that it was solvable, but I couldn't figure it out. I tried one way, then another. I couldn't solve it. I don't give up easily, so I kept trying. I wasn't getting anywhere. And finally, my friend showed me the solution. The only way to do it is to go outside of the perceived boundaries of the box. And by the way, think outside the box. That phrase originated with the nine-dot puzzle. Once you go outside the box... There's more than one way to solve the problem. That's exactly what Jesus does with Martha. He took her out of the perceived boundaries of the box and beyond the confines of the tomb. The answer to Martha, to the atheist, and to us is the one Jesus gave. I am the resurrection and the life. We've assumed the boundaries of our lives go from the birthing room to the tomb. Jesus extends the lines. But then Martha and the atheists and we need more than an answer. We need the answerer. We need Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. The future into which he draws us can transform the past and charge the present with hope. St. Paul reminds his friends in Corinth of the undeniable, inescapable truth that in Adam all die. See, that's the box. 
within the confines of this world, the boundaries of the birthing room and the tomb, there's no solution. But because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, St. Paul can draw the lines outside the box. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all will be made alive. The hope of the world is the resurrected and resurrecting Jesus. Jesus tells Martha, I am, this is the I am that we've seen before, spoken in the style of deity. I am the resurrection and the life. And we've heard that at so many funerals. It ceased to register as something remarkable. It's become a religion's commonplace. I wish we could hear it afresh as Martha heard it. She and every other Jew in her world knew what the resurrection was, the coming to life of everyone who had ever lived on the last day. How could Jesus say he was that? How can a person be the resurrection? It's like saying, I am the sunrise, or I am the flood, or I am the end of the world. We'll think through that in a moment. But first, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't stop there. He makes this extraordinary claim. Had his enemies heard it, they would have accused him again of being insane and demonized. And then immediately asks Martha if she believes it. I don't want us to miss this. You can't take Jesus or leave him. You can only believe him or deny him. Be with him or against him. He throws his claims down like a gauntlet. His very person is a challenge. If he isn't who he claims he is, the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, if he isn't who he claims he is, then he's dangerous and demented. If he is who he claims he is, then he's dangerous and determined. But either way, he's dangerous. Whatever else he is, he is not a religious commonplace. He is a lightning rod, a a spiritual watershed, a crossroads. When his cross was plunged into the earth, it immediately began dividing the world. Everyone must eventually choose the side of the world on which he or she will take their stand, with Jesus or against him. Martha chose to be with him. She says to him, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who's come into the world. She doesn't exactly say she believes this, but I love what she does say. I believe you. Martha didn't have all the answers by any means, but she had the answerer. And she was going to stick to him, as Katie Luther once said, as a bird to a top coat. There was so much she didn't know. But she knew him, and that was enough. There's so much you don't know, but if you know him, that's enough. Now, let's go back to Jesus' remarkable introduction to himself. I am the resurrection and the life. See, Jesus is the resurrection Because he is the life. He is the creational life that brought the universe into existence. His being teems with life, 
fruitful, prolific, overflowing life. John's been preparing us for this since the opening line of the gospel. In the beginning, he said, very intentionally taking us back to creation, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now listen to the next line. In him was life, the creational life that brought the universe into being, and that life was the light of men. The reason Jesus is the resurrection is that he is the life, unstoppable, unquenchable, prolific, productive, fertile life. If that life is in you, the life that teems, that overflows, that explodes into 8.7 million species just on our planet, then there is not a grave that can hold you. The life that energized creation will energize you. That life, his life, cannot be stopped by anything, not even death. It's because he is the life that he is the resurrection and why we, if his life is in us, will be resurrected. Now think about John's gospel. Try to get it in your head. It begins at the beginning with creation. By repeating the opening words of Genesis, John is transporting us back to the garden and its gardener, the first man, Adam in Hebrew, the first Adam. We then follow John through seven signs that he records, each one further completing the revelation of Jesus, the Son of God, as the seven days of creation further completed the revelation of the Creator. The seventh sign, it seems to me, is the raising of Lazarus. It'll be called a sign later in this chapter. After narrating the seven signs, John makes sure we hear Pilate say, Behold the man. That's no accident. John wants us to see the new Adam, the head of the new creation, man as he was created to be. There remains one final sign, an eighth day sign, if you will, the resurrection of Jesus. It is the beginning, the genesis of the recreation, the renewal of the all things which were made by the word in the first place. So where does John take us on the first day of the new creation? Back to the garden. This is chapter 20, where Mary Magdalene mistakes Jesus for, who else? The gardener. Chesterton said what they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth and in a semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden in the cool, not of the evening, but of the dawn. The new Genesis. That Jesus is the resurrection and the life means there is a new creation, a new beginning, one without ending. It means that what has gone wrong will be set right even in our own lives. It does not mean the end of all the subjunctives, all the would-haves, should-haves, and could-haves. It means their fulfillment. 
Listen to what Jesus says. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives in me, lives and believes in me will never die. The life, the creational life, is transmitted to us by God's spirit and we receive it through believing in Jesus. Faith is a receiver, like, like the wireless card in your laptop, like the router, if you will, through which this life comes to a person. When people talk about receiving Jesus, this is what they're talking about. When a person receives Jesus, who is the life, that life starts changing them rewriting their code to stick with the computing analogy, and it renders them deathless. His life just won't stay dead. And if we have it in us, we won't either. Many people, maybe you, have the mistaken idea that eternal life is something we get after we die like a reward for having believed in Jesus. Oh, you believed in Jesus, I'll give you eternal life. That's not how it works. When a person believes in Jesus, he or she begins immediately to receive his life. The creational, fruitful, prolific, can't-kill-it life that just doesn't stay dead. That means that even though that person dies, they will not and cannot Die into the age to come. That's a literal translation of verse 26. That life won't stay dead. They will be resurrected. But that life doesn't lie dormant until it reaches the grave. It begins changing a person immediately upon reception, reshaping that person. Their thoughts, their desires, their values, into something new and different, almost a new species. They gradually turn into a person who looks more and more like Jesus. That is not a coincidence. It's the reason the life was transmitted to the person in the first place. It's God's overarching plan that that we should be conformed to the image of his Son, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That life begins forming a new self, as St. Paul says, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. That's been the plan since the beginning. This life comes with a range of new possibilities, the ability to hear God and understand what he's saying. Uh, to forgive, to love unlovable people, to hope, to endure things the person was not capable of prior to receiving it. If the new life isn't changing a person in the present, there's reason to doubt that it will resurrect him in the future. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. If we have the life, we will have the resurrection. If we have the life, we're being transformed even now. If we have Jesus, we have the life. That's 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. The one who has the Son has the life. The life which, as St. Paul put it, is life indeed. Do you have the Son? 
Let's pray. Lord, we are stuck in our box in so many ways. You know us. You know our minds are small. That there are greater and stranger things in our world than we have dreamed of. Lord, don't leave us at the mercy of the things that happen to us between the birthing room and the tomb. Instead, Lord, have mercy on us and break us out of this box and into the larger world where Jesus is and has always been Lord. And we ask you to do this in his name.